Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. G'day, Mike Hussey here, but you can call me Mr. Supercoach. KFC Supercoach BBL is back and there's 25 grand up for grabs. So what are you waiting for? Play today at supercoach.com.au. T's and C's apply. New South Wales authorization number TP slash 01005. This is your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan. And it's great to have your company for another edition of This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Today we celebrate the life of a man who has made his mark as a player and as a coach. He has earned his place in heaven if you're a supporter of the red and white. And he's the man who's worn the number one uh, jumper more than anybody. And in the eyes of a lot of people, he is number one. Paul Roos. Roosy, welcome. Thanks, mate. Yeah, great to be here. Lovely to see you and uh, lovely to see you in your new guy. Not only as a, uh, a commentator, but also as an author, because you've got a book coming out just at this time. Yeah, it's exciting. Um, yeah, it's called Here It Is, and it's really like this is the third book I've done. The first one was more of a playing career. Uh, beyond 300 so that was really when I was still playing so that was talking a lot around Fitzroy and the actual playing component next book I did with Tammy which was really around the balance of a family life and a bit on leadership and meditation and wellness and and this one's really drilling down onto coaching and leadership it really takes into consideration all my time at Sydney how that came about and then the transition to Melbourne Footy Club and the difference and how to build you know winning cultures and yeah it was really exciting Jen Mackersy wrote it with me and was really good because Jen and I are great friends. Her son and my son are best mates. She was my team manager when I was coaching yeah. Darcy and Tyler. She, as you know, she loves her footy. She actually worked for the Swans after I'd finished coaching, and she was a journalist up in Sydney. So she knew that, you know, knew the journey as well. So it was really exciting doing it with her. A lot of authors find the whole process quite cathartic. It's a great experience for them to to look back and to go over the details of all of the things they've done. Did you find it that way? Yeah, it is because. Because you're very rarely when you when you're involved in the industry and when you are you, you very rarely get a chance to go back and think about a game or a process or whatever. So I've noticed it with all three books. It's actually puts your career in perspective and it gives you a chance to to reflect on it. One of the best things I I found out though that I did a presentation to the Swans board in to get the job in two thousand at the end of two thousand two going to two thousand three season. And I didn't know whether the presentation still existed. So I rang um, Anthony Carl, who was the IT guy for me at the time and still at the Swans, and he had it in his computer. So we've reproduced that for the book. So looking back over that was just fascinating, absolutely fascinating to see the, the slides that we, we I presented. And I guess at the time, the blueprint for what I hoped was going to be successful. So to look back over that was just incredible. So when you do look back over that, do you see things that eventually did 
come to fruition down the track and you thought, oh, well, I got that right at the time. Yeah, absolutely. It was, it was staggering when I look back on you know, some of the slides and I think one of them said, I will inspire, teach, uh, teach and inspire the Swans to win a premiership. And it was sort of like, gee, pretty bold statement when you don't know what you're doing. Um, yeah, I talked about being united as a footy club, talked about a, you know, a teaching culture. So, yeah, it was just so fascinating to, to look back on. And, and I think one thing people will find interesting was I actually at the time graded I rated Brisbane Lions. They were the premiership team in 2001 and two, and I rated their team, you know, out of 10, uh, every single player against ours to give, you know, the board an understanding of how far behind we are. So when I look back, some of the players will be a bit dirty on the rating I gave them, but it was pre, <laughs> it was pre-2005. So guys like I think Jude Bolton were rated a six sort of thing. Kirky was sort of six. So it was interesting. And what, what I spoke about then, we, we, you know, we've got some good players, but we need to improve them to get them up to, I think I rated Voss a 10 and I mean they had some as you know some great players you know mm. Lappin and Black and, and Acker and Lynchy and Brownie and I think there was about a 15% gap in real terms so that was really interesting too going back on that. Let's go back even before you got to Fitzroy how did a boy from Donvale all of a sudden make it to the big time who did you barrack for when you were a kid? Well, I was a Carlton supporter as a kid and it was funny but we weren't huge we were massive sports fans massive sports fans but we yeah we were Saturday night replay guys because we were so busy. Mum and dad were tennis players. You know, I, I had tennis lessons, but my passions were, were basketball, tennis, and football. So back back then, you know, I would train, you know, if you're talking about winter, every night. So either basketball or football. I'd play basketball Friday nights. I'd probably play tennis Saturday mornings. I'd train for basketball Saturday afternoons, play Saturday nights, play football Sundays. So we didn't go to the football much. It was funny, but then the big night was Saturday night, wasn't it? Like yeah. the replay was huge. You know, you, you'd get the fish and chips or whatever. And then you know, the the invite to go down to um, Fitzroy, I think the first time... It was a, I think it was an under fifteen or under sixteen combined game, the city league versus the country league, and our country league was really strong as well, like Colac, Camperdown, Warnable. So that was my first exposure to Fitzroy, which was exciting. And then to get invited down the under nineteens, which is so much better system then than what it is now. It's just, it's just chalk and cheese. You know, the ability of sort of fifty, sixty kids to go down to an AFL club, you know, and then to develop at their own speed, and then to get on an AFL list. Yeah, you know, and the list was sort of six. 60-something plus sub list. So, you know, you could sneak onto a list, you could play a bit of seconds footy and you could develop at your own rate. So, But going down to Fitzroy, oh, I mean, it was just you know, a lifelong dream about... Um, I mean, I think every kid dreams of it. You don't really think about it. You just, back in those days, the invitation comes and you just do it, you know. So, yeah, it was really exciting to get invited down there and uh, then sort of start your career from there. What don't you like about the underage system there? I just think the gap's far too great. I think the opportunities are far too limited for players. Um, and I think the young, the, the late developers are really frozen out of the system, you know, and that's they're the, probably the three biggest things that I see. And, you, and you've got to pick eight. 80 kids from all around Australia. So it's really so much crystal balling. And, and we joke often with the, with my ear of guys, oh, would you have got drafted? Would you have got drafted? Well, I don't know. I couldn't honestly tell you whether I was in the best, you know, 60 players in Australia. I played for Victoria in the Teal Cup as it was then, and I made the All-Australian team. But, you know, I don't know whether I would have got Johnny Blakey, you know, the, the Purdy, Aussie, all those sort of crew. So it's just so much more unfair now on the kids and it's so much harder for the kids now. So you get to fit. Fitzroy, and you got to a Fitzroy team that was 
on the ascendancy. They were playing finals on a regular basis at that time. We often think of Fitzroy and what happened to them in the mid-90s, and we'll talk about that later on. But that was a pretty strong team when you got there. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think people forget, and I try and remind people all the time, because when you know, when guys do their top 50 of all time, their top 100 of all time, there's very few Fitzroy players that ever make those lists. And I think people forget how good they were in, in the 80s to 86, and how good Gary Wilson was, and how good Bernie Quinn was, you know, and I think you're absolutely right. So I was, I was fortunate. I got there and probably under 19s in 1980. Got the senior list in 81, and then played my first game in 1982. Um, so really, really high quality players. You know, the final series of 83 was amazing. That mm. was the the famous Michael Nettlefold run the ball over the boundary line, give a gift to Tucky. Tucky kicks a goal and we lose the game, sort of thing. So we were we were an outstanding team in 83. I remember. We were, I think, second and north on top. We played the junction over. We won by 15 goals or something like that. Yeah, Matty Rendell kicked seven. Mickey Conlon kicked six. Gary Wilson, Bernie Quinlan, yeah, those names. So, yeah, look, you're right because the sad part of it is that people remember Fitzroy as a bit of a downtrodden team and, and probably don't give enough respect to the high-quality players they had through through that, that era. One of the most memorable uh, games of football I've ever been to, Rosie, was that elimination final in 1986, yeah. that wet day at Waverley and Mickey Conlon kicking that goal. It's, it is a football memory that is etched in my brain and always will be. Yeah, absolutely. I saw some vision of it um, not that long ago, actually, the excitement. I was pretty excited after the game and some vision of me and, and actually my travel agent now. Now, um, Janine Ferguson. She's and she, I didn't realise since she's she, she's a per, good girl. She's a, a Fitzroy supporter, and she's in the vision. And she reminded me of it. How excited she was, and looking back on her, looking back on me, sort of skipping off the field after Mickey hadn't touched the ball the whole day, yeah. and then there was a tackle in the middle of the, the ground, and um, the ball spilled out got to Mickey, Mickey kicked the goal and uh, it was an amazing day and you could see I think if you wanted to captivate the power and elation and excitement of the Fitzroy Football Club and the, the club that it was, that's probably the piece of vision that you'd show someone to say look this is what Fitty, Fit, this is what Fitzroy was all about We've got a lot to talk about, we'll take our first break Paul Ruse is my special guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives, back with more with Ruse on the other side of the break You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan. A very special edition of This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral, celebrating lives with Paul Ruse. Ruse, great memories at Fitzroy. As we said, um, you were a very powerful team, but it didn't take long for that to change at Fitzroy. We've often spoken about the facilities that you had there, and I remember going out to the old Coburg Oval at various times. It's unbelievable in this day and age that you would have facilities that were as Spartan as they were. Yeah, look, some of the things that really stick out for me, I mean, we just touched on the 86 finals, but 86, we had a meeting at Wesley College, I think it was, because um, our fitness guy at the time was working there. We, it was a Sunday morning. We were actually on the tennis course playing tennis, and I think it was Leon Weigh had come and said, look, we're in massive trouble. It's about six or seven weeks to go, and we're going to have to merge, relocate. Um, and then that was the, the, the era of the Brisbane Bears coming in. So there's a lot happening at the back end of that year. There's a company, I think, called Hecron at the time that actually saved the club. And probably in hindsight, it was almost the worst thing that happened because it just 
Yeah, staggered for years and years and years and always had money problems, always had venue problems. Yeah, we went from the Junction Oval to Victoria Park. We trained at times at you know, Northcote, Coburg, Waverley, um, Victoria Park, and then we moved to Princess Park to play our home games, mm-hmm. and then we moved to Western Oval to play our home games. I remember turning up to two stories that I remember we were training out at Waverley so I was working in the city had to drive all the way out to Waverley there was a sign on the door can't train at Waverley tonight head to Northcote so then you had to jump in your car from Waverley drive all the way to Northcote and one night the ground was so bad Wolsey after 10 minutes or 15 minutes said we're not even going to train boys let's go in, go inside another morning I turned up uh, once we'd moved our training facilities to um, South Melbourne ground we turned up on a Sunday morning to do a a recovery session. There was a big padlock chain on the the door with a note saying, "If you don't pay your bill, you won't be allowed back in again." So things like that were just quite amazing when you look back on now and where the competition's gone and the facilities that the teams have and Eddie had Stadium, the roof on, and mm. and all those sorts of things. How much did all of that influence your decision to make the move from Fitzroy to Sydney? Yeah, that was it. I mean, I always wanted to be a one-team player, and but I'd seen some things happen. Obviously, Purdy leaving, Johnny Blakey, Lynchy the year before I did, Paul Broderick, Michael Gale. You know, it just wasn't the same team. And, you know, I, I was, you know, often spent um, pre-season overseas, <clears throat> pre-Christmas, because Tammy and the club was good to me. But the number of times I get a, a phone call from a player while I was over there saying, Ruzi, look, can you help me? I'm not getting paid at the moment. I've, I've just bought a house. I'm on bridging finance. So I was sort of almost the conduit between the players and the club and the money and and all those sorts of things. So it was purely and simply a fact that the club wasn't the same. You know, we used to get paid March... 1st of March, 1st of July, 1st of December, three payments a year. And, and, and this is not a criticism of, of Fitzroy. It's just the way it was. And every time your payment was due, you had to ring up the accountant. Oh, look, Rizzy, can you wait another week? Can you wait another two weeks? And you just got sick of doing that. Uh, I remember when I first arrived at Sydney, and I thought, oh, Tammy, geez, 1st of March has come around. I rang the accountant. She said, oh, haven't you checked your bank account? And I said, there's this thing called an automatic deposit that goes in. I didn't even know it existed. <laughs> so... You know, it was really difficult to leave. There's no question about that. But the, the club wasn't the same. You know, it just wasn't the same football club that I'd walked into. And and Rossi Lyon, myself, Jimmy Wine, probably not many of us left. And I remember we just used to talk about it, how different it was. And we were almost sort of an isolated group because all these players had come from other clubs sort of been shunted there because, you know, they'd been traded, they'd delisted. And um, so it was so, so dramatically different. I would have loved to have stayed. Having said that, you know, the Sydney experience was amazing. But the Fitzroy supporters, as you know, the amount of times we had fundraising, yeah. uh, it was just crazy. The same people putting in the money the same time and, and the fundraising efforts. So, look, it just wasn't the same club. Yeah, you know, post '86, it just was really financially in trouble for the next ten years before it before it eventually um, merged with the the Brisbane Bears. You'd already gone to Sydney by the time that Fitzroy met its ultimate demise. What were you feeling when you saw that game against Richmond at the MCG, and I think it was against Fremantle, the last game um, over in the West? Did did it tug at the heartstrings for you when you saw that? What they did was they invited all the Fitzroy players to watch the Richmond game, so we were in the room at the MCG. G, uh, big function room, you know, Bernie Quinlan, Gary Wilson, Laurie Purdy, you know, a whole group of, of players. And it was great. It was a great experience. But I, I guess the sad thing is, and I say this with all due respect to the players at the time, they probably would have been better to get the guys out of the, the room and suit them up um, 
you know, put Gary Wilson back on the field and, and Bernie Quinlan. And, you know, they would have been better to do that than the players that represented the club at, at, on that day because they were just a mismatch of, of guys that sort of, were, as I said, were sort of struggling with their careers. And look, with all you, I, I mean, I think Brad Boyd was the captain. He was a fantastic player. So there's still some some good play, but I think they got beaten by 20 goals yeah. that day. And, you know, it was quite sad to, to watch them. And that was probably the, the greatest reflection of the day, just how much we'd plummeted as a football club and, and how much, when I looked around the room, the talent that was in the room and how much the club had gone from that great team of the early 80s with those great players. And, and you know, even before that with Kevin Murray and, and Johnny Murphy and, and Warwick Irwin and, you know, the great history of the club to look at the look at the team and um, just the sort of mismatch of players that would put on in the ground and, you know, the, the belting they copped by 20 goals was hard to watch. So you go to Sydney in the mid-90s and there's still that degree of anonymity for an Australian rules player going up to Sydney, but probably didn't last that long because there was a grand final beckoning. Yeah, it was a funny experience going to Sydney because uh, I hadn't spent a lot of time there at all and I turned up there and, and coincided with Tony Lockett being there. But I remember when I first arrived, um, there's probably a couple of things that stood out. You know, you pick up the paper and you sort of think, oh, we must be, have some relevance and you turn it over and it's rugby league. Second page, in back page is rugby league, third back page is rugby league, fourth back page is rugby league, fifth back page is rugby league, sixth back and I'm thinking surely we're going to get to some AFL shortly and just before the obituaries there's a little article <laughs> a little article about the sort of swans so you realise pretty quickly and, and, I'm, and I'm talking about 95 when I first arrived so that's when I first arrived so you realise pretty quickly gee and really you go around the town and no one has a clue who you are So here you are 14 years into your career the, the, the grand final the premiership beckons and the opportunity goes past did you think to yourself Maybe that's my last crack at one. Well, when I went up there, I must admit, because I knew going up, they were the bottom team. You know, I'd come from the second bottom team. So people said, you know, why'd you go to Sydney? I said, it wasn't that far to go. We were, you know, we were second bottom, <laughs> they were bottom. Um, so I didn't really think that I'd play in. I thought maybe at the end, I signed a three-year deal. I thought, well, maybe at the end of... So I didn't see myself playing in a grand final. So what Ronnie Joseph did was fantastic with Tony Lockett and then Stewie Maxfield, Craig, uh, Craig O'Brien, um, Kevin Dyson. So some of the guys that probably people don't really understand because they already had a little bit of a nucleus with Kelly, Creswell, Dunkley, Bays. You know, that's some really good players up there. So I didn't think I'd play in a grand final. But it's the best day of your footy career and the worst day in one day, you know, to... To play, to run on the MCG, you know, look up in the grandstands, run through the banner. When the siren goes to start the game, it's just amazing. Um, yeah, and then to lose at the end of the game is is very deflating because you you do immediately think, gee, this is a long, it's a hard to get there, and that's when you really appreciate it. it is hard to get there, so you immediately think. Yeah, she's going to be a long way. But we had some. We played in finals ninety ninety seven ninety eight. My last game in ninety eight was against Adelaide at the SCG. Might have been the second semi or whatever they call it. So, um, so we were pretty successful at the end of that. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't really know whether I'd go into coaching. So certainly, yeah. Once I'd finished my seventeen year career, um, you know, you were staring down the barrel of you know playing in one losing grand final and and really. You know, the memories far outweighed that anyway. So it wasn't something that I really reflected on. I was more reflecting on the positives of it, but certainly thought that probably wouldn't happen. That final against Adelaide, I think you started on the bench. In fact, yep. you started a lot of your latter games on the bench. Did that stand you in good stead to understand what players might be going through when you eventually took the reins as a coach? Yeah, when I look back on it, it was a really pivotal time. You know, um, back then the interchange wasn't really used as it is today at all. It was sort of 
you know, sit on the bench if someone gets injured or maybe has a, a shocking game, you get on. Um, so I really learned a lot. I learned a lot through the lens of other players' eyes, you know, the 22nd player, the 30th player, the guys that miss out. And then at the end of 1998, I wrote down a list of things I liked about my coaches, didn't like about my coaches, you know, just to, to really formulate my views. I didn't want to forget what it was like to be a player. I didn't even know whether I was going to coach, but I didn't want to forget what it was like to be a player. And I put it in the book, all 25 points. So it was absolutely pivotal. And I remember the, the, the 98, and it was quite funny because Rocket Rocket was good. He had some really good themes before games, as most of the good coaches do. And he had this theme around, boys, we're all on the train together today. We're on the train together. And it was good. You know, everyone's, yeah, let's get on the train. Let's go on the train before the game. And we'd run out, and I was sitting on the bench, and I was on the bench till halftime and went back in at halftime. And Rocket's going, yeah, we, boys, we're all on this train together. We're all on the train together. And I remember talking to Stewie Maxfield, who was playing with me, and I said, Stewie, I said, I can't get a ticket. I said, where, where do I get a ticket? I can't get on the train, mate. Can you help me get on the... Can you? So those things are quite... I got on halfway through the third quarter, so I eventually got a ticket on the train. And unfortunately, the train didn't go too far. I got to the next platform and stopped. So uh, we were out. But yeah, that, that, that time was really, really pivotal when I look back on it to um, write down those notes and then through my career, hold myself accountable to them. So that became your creed. Yeah, absolutely. When I took the job and I wrote them down, they happened to be 25 points. I wrote them down and, you know, when I took the job um, for the Swans for the last two weeks and then got it full time, I had it in my desk for the whole time when I brought it out, when I got the Melbourne job, had it in my desk the whole time. Um, and it really did hold me accountable and it really held, it really took me back to what it was like to be a player because, as I said, I think sometimes coaches, the longer they are away from playing, you know, the angrier they get, the crankier they get, the less empathy they have for the players. So I really wanted to hold myself accountable to that. We're going to take a break, Rusey. When we come back, we'll find out how it all evolved and how you became the coach and how it led to that one day that a lot of people will never forget. Paul Ruse is my special guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tabor. Brothers Funeral serving families across Victoria for more than 80 years. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan. Great to have your company for This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives and Paul Ruse is my guest. Ruse, the assistant coaching role in 2002, how did that all come about after all of the experiences that we spoke about in television and various other things? Yeah, I was part-time, as I said, doing an assistant defensive role. Georgie Stone was the defensive coach in 2000, so I was doing Channel 7, doing some coaching. Cole Siri came to me and said, there was a spot, a full-time spot available, 2001. So, yeah, after a bit of the discussions and thinking what I was going to do, I decided that was something I'd like to do, see if see if coaching was something from a, a senior coaching role, so whether I'd be interested. So the best way to do that is get into the assistant coach, see whether you enjoy it, see whether you enjoy the environment, and then decide after that. So, yeah, so that's how that started. And then, of course, halfway through 2002, with about 10 weeks to go, the bombshell sort of dropped. And I remember, yeah, we'd played Geelong, and I think we were you know, three or four wins and what a, a seven losses or something like that. We we're going to the Geelong game, and we were actually up. We were up by about four goals with about five minutes to go, or probably probably a bit longer. And then all of a sudden, they kicked the last five goals, and we lost. And just I remember all hell broke loose in the games. It's the old, remember the old movie, The Club. You yeah, know? it was sort of like that revisited. You know, the chairman was in the rooms, the CEO was in the rooms. The players left. The coaches were all in there. I think Kelvin Temple actually wanted us to come in. He was the CEO at the time. 
he wanted us to come in the next day and play a practice game. We had the bye the following week and we're sort of, and we've got to be a little bit careful because emotions are so high. We're just the assistant coaches. And I remember looking at the other guys thinking, not, not much good's going to come out of this. And so we eventually calmed everyone down a little bit. And <clears throat> it was agreed that we had to bring the players in the next day. Now, being mindful, as I said, the next week was the bye. So the players basically had you know, a few days off. No, that was going to change. And I sensed that you know, it was quite reactionary. Um, we had a player's function that night. Um, I think Adam Goods was already on a plane. He had to, he had to change his flights and there some things happened. I remember standing with some senior players and I was an assistant coach and I remember they were threatening not to turn up the next day. I said, guys, you know, and it wasn't against Rocket. It was more, they could sense what was happening. It was sort of this this whole club it sort of started to become a bit wobbly and they could sense that. And I said, guys, you have to turn up. You you cannot not turn up tomorrow. If, if you do, it's going to be an absolute disaster. So they all turned up. We did this thing called the Scarecrow, which Wolsey sort of introduced back in the early 80s where you stand up with your arms parallel to the to the ground. You've got to hold your arms out for as long as you can. And generally what happens, blokes drop to their knees because you can't put your arms down, then their chest goes on the ground, then their head goes on the ground because their arms are still up, technically. Um, and I, I remember the scarecrow that Wolsey did. Nothing ever good come out of the scarecrow. So. <laughs> and then a couple of days later, of course, Rocket re- resigned. And even on that, I mean, you'd appreciate this, Peter, that I got a phone call and I'm sitting in my office. My my office right next to Rockets. I get a phone call from, I think, Johnny, Johnny Blakey was the first one. And Johnny goes, oh, I heard Rocket's going to resign. I said, no, he's not. He said, yeah, he is, he is. And Johnny was in, he was either in Melbourne or Queensland at the time coaching. He said, I said, no, he's not. He said, mate, I'm telling you, he is. So I'm actually in the office next to Rocket. He's telling me from another state. Put the phone down, didn't bother too much about Stephen Quartermain rings me. Quarters goes, mate, do you want to comment about Rocket leaving? I said, mate, I don't know what you're talking about. I have no idea. So when I hung up on quarters, I walked into Rocket. And I said, mate, I've just got two phone calls telling me that you're going to resign. He goes, yeah, I'm, I am. So it was, it's how the the media operated. And, and then that afternoon, um, yeah, he gave it away. And obviously things changed dramatically after that. Did you think twice about taking the role because sometimes the role of a caretaker coach can be a poison chalice because it can either make you or break you. Yeah, look, absolutely. So what happened was Rocket left and um, we had a, a meeting with all the match committee. Dennis Carroll was chairman of the match committee at the at that stage. Cole Seary, I think, was there. Steve Lawson, they were sort of CEO, football manager. And then it was a discussion around what are we going to do. So we tossed a few things. I think it was John Longmire and Steve Malaxos and myself. Um, and we tossed a few things around what we do, would we share it, what we do? And then, then the club said, no, Ruzi, we want you to do it. Absolutely. I had to really think seriously about it because, you know, you know the, the, the team, I think at that stage was four and eight. You know, and they weren't going that well, bereft of confidence. Um, so, you know, at that moment, you know, it could be the shortest coaching career or it could be an opportunity. So, you know, I had to discuss it. I'd think about it, and then I agreed to, to do it for the next 10 weeks. When you got to the end of the year, it was generally accepted that Terry Wallace was going to be the coach of the Swans, and uh, pretty much he was signed, sealed, and delivered, or so the rumour mill had it. Were you aware of that at the time? Aware of the rumours, yeah. I mean, the media were quite um, quite good, because they would ring me and fill me in, and I think in a strange way, the Sydney media wanted me to coach, so they were actually quite helpful at the time, but it was all rumour, uh, but it was difficult, because I was coaching, our seconds were in the finals, I took the, the seconds team down to to do a little week of Melbourne, just to show them what AFL finals is about, and we went and watched some teams train and all that, and then I found out, ironically, 
I think it was through Neil Cordy. Cords rang me and said, mate, I heard you're presenting the board. I said, oh, not that I know about. He goes, I think you have to. So then I went and spoke to Steve Lawson or Cole Siri or Andrew Island or someone. I said, mate, am I supposed to present the board? He goes, yeah, I think it'd be good for you. Um, so then I put a presentation together. And an amazing thing when, I'd been, when I was doing the book is I, I didn't know whether the presentation still existed. So I rang up Anthony Carl, who's a fantastic friend and a, been a great servant of the Swans, still working at the Swans now. Um, I said, Carl, have you got that presentation still? And he said, uh, let me check. And he checked, and it's, it's in the book, and it's mm. it's unbelievable how, how fascinating it is. So, yeah, putting that together... You know, the views of, of what they were and then eventually getting the job. And look, still to this day, no one sort of said yes or no that they did offer him the job. But clearly that was the, the rumours at the time. Let's go forward to that day in 2005. I'm sure that having seen what Luke Beveridge did last year, you are the one who can identify more than anybody on this planet with what Luke Beveridge was feeling on that day last year. It must have been an unforgettable day for you. Yeah, amazing. It was just incredible. Um, yeah, the lead-in, you know, being in a state team, coming down, the parade, all those sorts of things, and then going through the game. Um, but, you know, the last couple of minutes, people say, what do you think of Leo's mark? And, you know, I didn't actually see it. I remember the kick-in that it was marked by Cox and then I turned and looked at the other end of the ground because we knew there wasn't that long to go and I thought, well, gee, I don't know what's going to happen here. And someone in the box yelled out, Leo's marked it and we didn't hear the siren either and I think Peter Jonas yelled out, the siren's gone. And then, and I really was conscious of um, being present in every moment you know, I'd thought about that the night before, not missing the opportunity, you know, if we win or lose, um, and hopefully win, to take the opportunity. So we stayed in the box for a little bit. We, we spoke, we congratulated each other. I remember walking reasonably calmly and slowly down onto the ground. And then the, the sea of faces of, um, you know, Barry Round, Paul Kelly gave me the cup, Richard Collis, you know, but all the guys, you know, Mike Willis, I think was on the ground, Basil Sellers, um, Peter Weinart, all the guys that have put a heap of money into the club. So it probably hit me at that moment. You, you understand it, but not until that moment, you know, the players, how much effort had gone into that 72 years. And I think that was the moment I really understood the enormity of what had happened. Um, then Tammy and my kids and then getting on the dice. And, and what I said, it sort of come to me the, the bit about you know, the South Melbourne Sydney here it is it sort of only come to me right at the end and I think it was just a, a culmination of seeing so many Bobby Skilton mm-hmm. you know so many people had put in so much time and effort into uh, this football club um, that, that that sort of came out of my mouth and, and then the next day going to the Lakeside Oval and then the back to the SCG and then the parade we had in Sydney. I remember getting in the car with Hawley and I can't remember, I remember the route but I can't remember the name of the streets and that because we finished at the town hall. So where we started was sort of um, a little bit obscure from where the route was and you drive out on the road and I remember saying to Hawley, I said, geez, I hope someone turns up today. This, this, you know, Sydney in Sydney, rugby league town, this could be a bit embarrassing, you know, and he's saying, saying, and it was incredible. I mean, the amount of people, and then when we got to the town hall, it was just ridiculous how many people were there. So, and then the number of emails and, and letters and people, you know, stopping me on the street, and even still to this day, you know, oh, you don't realise how much it means to me. My father passed away, my mother passed away in 2000, end of 2005, 2006. Um, it meant so much to them. So it was just enormous. So you're right. I mean, what Luke went through last year, we went through in 2005, and I can see, you know, for the Bulldogs, 
Bulldogs fans, and probably in a way, I know they played the Swans, but in a way, when I watched the game, I was sort of in a position where I couldn't really lose. You know, I obviously wanted the Swans to win, but I also had this this feeling of what it was like to be the Sydney Swans back in 2005 and what the Bulldogs probably meant to the game and to their supporters. So watching the game last year was sort of somewhat strange um, as a as a Swans sort of fan, although probably more Melbourne now, but you know the connection there, but also the, the understanding of the history of uh, and the and the barrenness that existed for that footy club. Yeah, well I can emphasize exactly what you're talking about with the drought being over because my father was born in 1931. So he was two years old yeah. when South Melbourne won their previous premiership and he's been a lifelong supporter of the football club and my brother and my sisters are all Sydney, South Melbourne supporters and they were there that day. Yeah. And it just it made their life. Oh, it was, yeah, it, it is. And it's funny because we talk about football being life or death and, and we're fortunate you know, being in the industry and I'm fortunate to be in the inner sanctum and sometimes when you're in the inner sanctum you you don't understand the importance the game has to people but those times really remind you how important the game is some fabulous memories some unforgettable memories for Paul Roos when we come back on the other side of the break he goes from one team that was South Melbourne to a team that was Melbourne and we'll find out how on our final segment on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan. Our final segment on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives with the great Paul Ruse. Ruse, the transition from Sydney to Melbourne. First of all, before we find out how it all happened, what about the events of last weekend? You must have been gutted when you saw that performance that Melbourne produced against Collingwood and then subsequently what happened last Sunday as well. Yeah, well, I was doing the Sydney versus uh, Carlton game and I was actually doing a book signing because normally if Melbourne are playing, I've got my phone and I'm actually watching the game on my phone in the preparation to whatever we do because we get to the ground a couple of hours earlier. I knew they got back to within about seven or eight or nine points and I was sort of half hoping that I looked at the final score and it was 15 points or whatever it was. And, and then Sunday I did... Uh, um, the game at the MCG and then I drove home pretty quickly and I watched the last quarter and I've never barracked for a team hard enough in my life the Crows um, mm-hmm. and I like I like Adam Simpson and I like the West Coast Eagles anyway but you know I was barracking for Adelaide and, and look at the end of the game and I guess this is um, once again the disappointment you know I'm disappointed as a Melbourne fan and as obviously the ex-coach but also I understand where the team's at and I thought this year was always going to be a, an, an interesting year I thought finals was achievable and as it turned out it was but two goals over a 23 week season that's what effectively we're speaking about and I said this to a Melbourne supporter yesterday I said look at the start of the year, if had someone had said, you know, we've gone from four wins to seven wins to ten wins, I said, if you can get to 12 wins and 105%, with a still a very young team, a massive lifts turnover, you know, there's been some experience added this year with Melcham and Hibbert and Lewis, which is, so they're a bit more experienced now. But I said, would you take that? And he said, oh, yeah, probably would have, you know. So I think you've got to analyse the whole year, you know, in totality when you're talking about teams in general, because otherwise you get on that week-to-week roller coaster and you'll be bitterly disappointed pointed um, as a as a Melbourne supporter but I think the club is head, is clearly heading the right direction they're going up 4 7 10 12 next year probably the excuses go you know in terms of the age factor but I think Goody would understand that the club understands that I think they were really unsure a little bit on this year and how it would pan out I think next year they're an absolute certainty to play finals and I'd say that talking about injuries and all the other things that actually happen if you line the best teams up next year they're definitely in the best eight teams in the 
competition. During this chat, we've spoken a lot about how the rumour mill works and the supposition of media and all that sort of thing. You are the only person who knows the answer to this question, but the rumour mill has it that it was the amount of zeros that were on the cheque and that pretty much only that convinced you to go to Melbourne. Surely it couldn't have been just that. No, that's funny because when Peter originally, Peter Jackson came and saw me and I said no about three times. And other than, the, so the first time he came, he said, I'll send you a contract. And I, I, to be honest, I didn't really look at it. I said, and I, I kept on saying no. Um, I then, um, as, a, as I illustrated, I've said this before, I then you know, went with Andrew Island. My contract was up with the Sydney Swans Academy and I was asked to take like a, I don't know, 70% pay cut or whatever it was, which was not, a, I don't mean to sound critical, that's just what, what it was. So for me, it was more of a sign it was time to move on. And I'm, I generally read signs of, you know, I'm a bit like that, you know, if, I, 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 if someone says something, I'll, why did they say it? So I, I took that really as a sign it was time to move on from the Swans. Um, I was then starting to think about what I was going to do, probably move back to Melbourne, Brisbane Lions, then sacked Bossy. They came and spoke to me. Peter came and, and spoke to me a number of other times. And then I then I sort of said, look, I, I spoke to Dave Misson, who was my fitness guy at the time. I asked him about the club. Uh, I then met with the leadership group. And that was probably the pivotal moment for me when I met with their leadership group and a couple of comments. I mean, they were, were great. They took responsibility. But when Jack Watts said, you know, we just want to be treated like humans, you know, just just want to be treated like a human being. So there's some real key moments. My son, when I got home and I got some text messages from Jack Trengove, Jack Drimes, Nathan Jones, um, and I showed them to Dylan and Tammy and Tyler and the, they said, look, you've got to coach the team. You know, we, be- we, we believe you can help them. And then what happened was, and this is a true story, I, I basically almost accepted the job and I was with my accountant. Um, I said, well, you and the manager and I said well you better sort out what the contract is um, you know because I'm pretty much going to do it now and then within the space of you know 20 obviously they had an idea but in the space of 24 hours that was all, all sorted out so and my my view is money is an, is a result of what you do it's not if you do things for money well, you're doing it for the wrong reason so that was the last thing on my mind yeah it was a well paid absolutely um you know so but the, but that was the last thing that was actually finalized the decision had already been made to coach the team on the back of what had transpired before that so yeah i understand as you said that the media you know, and it probably becomes a little bit of a, um, a, a bugbear to you because people, if you lose, people refer to it all the time and, and it becomes a symbol rather than judging someone purely on their job and, you know, what they do. So it was was a bit of a pain in the backside, to be honest, but we, we, we got through that and, and came out the other end. And, of course, the speculation's always going to go on, Rusey, because there's so much money in football these days and we had the Nathan Buckley situation. They're talking about a mentor. Is that something that would interest you? I mean, for a start, do you ever want to be a senior coach again, regardless of the money that they give you? No, and that's the thing. I, hopefully, that's why I'd like... I love people to read the book, particularly some of the people that comment on probably some of the most disappointing comments I had early days was Melbourne. Oh, he's not invested in the team. You know, he's saying the, the we and the I and the them and all those terms that, that media get a bit caught up on in press conference when you say it. And hopefully after people read the book, people realise we really focused on relationships. Now, if you're going to... The first three months I got to the club, Georgie Stone, Benny Matthews, uh, Frosty, Daniel McPherson, Brett Allison, who'd come from other clubs. Jade Rawlings was amazing. He was fantastic as was Josh Marnie and Toddy Viney and that. But but the guys that hadn't been there, we had to invest in people. You know, we, we did that for three, four, five months, 12 months, three years. You can't coach if 
if you're not invested. You can't coach if you're not emotionally tied to the group and the team. And that's why people say to me now, you know, I, you know I'm a Swan supporter, you know, do you break for the Swans? And it's hard for me to tell the Swans supporters I actually don't. Not because there's not a connection there. I mean, John and I are good friends and Jared McVeigh, we caught up for coffee not long ago and Adam Goods. And so there's a massive connection. But the last emotional attachment I had was to the Melbourne Footy Club. It doesn't dissipate overnight because people think, oh, you walk into a club and you become part of it and then you just walk out and it's a job. It's not a job. I can assure people out there, you know, it's not a job. It's it's a lifestyle. It's, 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 it's what you do. It's what you are for that period of time. And the energy that you invest in those players and that footy club is enormous. So, you know, I, I can't see myself coaching again. And that's why money has nothing to do with it because I, unless I'm emotionally invested, unless I can see myself, and that was the transformation at, from Melbourne in that three years, that the last sort of three or four months, I could see myself connecting to the players, connecting to Jack Watts, connecting to Peter Jackson as well, connecting to Nathan Jones. Dave Misson, who was already there, new Jade Rawlings. So for me, it was all about relationships. And you know, if you're not prepared to invest in it, it's very hard to, to do the job. So given the fact that you were in some ways Goody's mentor, even though you were senior coach and he was underneath you, but yep. you, were, you were almost in a mentor role because of the Kirribilli yeah. arrangement that yep. had happened. Is that something you'd consider with another coach? I'm not sure. Probably what surprises me a little bit is... And I know the industry is um, sometimes slow to catch on. And, and also, in order to do um, a succession plan, uh, a coach has to want to step aside. I guess I'm, I'm surprised, given the success of the Swans with John Longmire and how good um, Simon Goodwin is going to be as a coach or is as a coach now, I'm surprised that that hasn't happened at other clubs, that, that, that other clubs haven't looked at that succession plan model. And then in answer to your question directly, I think the mentor role, I mean, I spoke to Gil McLaughlin a lot about this when I was not coaching because when we did uh, On the Couch, myself and, and and Mike Sheehan and Jared and Billy Cannon used to go to Lamaros and, and Gil had a house not far away and he played basketball at, at MSAC and he first night he wandered in, didn't know we were there and then just got out of habit. And I spoke to Gil about this a lot, the, the lack of education for coaches and the lack of grounding and lack of training we have in the industry as a whole. I think when they put the two new teams in, they realised how hard it was going to be to get the players. I don't think they realised how hard it was to get CEOs, football managers, assistant coaches, coaches, recruiting officers, etc., etc. So Gil, I think Gil's really aware of that. I think Alistair Clarkson's really aware of it. Mark Brayshaw's doing a great job with the Coach Association. So there's still certainly a gap there for young coaches stepping up from assistant coaches to senior coaches. And I still think there are roles, whether I'm the one to do it or not. I definitely think there are roles for people like Neil Craig, Choco Williams, you know, guys that have they've coached Rodney Ede now, guys that have coached to mentor young coaches and help young coaches, absolutely. The name of the book is Here It Is, appropriately, and uh, it's available, as we say, in all good bookstores and some of the shocking ones as well. <laughs> and it's just in time for Father's Day. Ruzi, it's been lovely to share a studio with you again. It's been a, a brilliant career, both uh, on the field, in the coach's box, and in everything you've done. Can't wait to read the book. Thanks for your time. Thanks very much. I really appreciate it. Good on you. Paul Ruse joining us on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives, and we'll be back with another edition same time next week, right here on 1116 SEN, Melbourne's home of sport. It's Ty Power's Big Footy final sale. To kick things off, you can get the power to buy three and get one free on selected Toyo passenger car and SUV tyres. Ty Power's Big Footy final sale can't last. Visit typower.com.au now.